For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. You are listening to Fangirl Sports Network's Get My Job on Blue Wire. I am your host, Tracy Sandler, and today I am so excited to be joined by Sports Illustrated senior writer Jenny Vrentis. Jenny is one of my favorite sports writers and, frankly, one of the best in the business. We talk about everything from Stephanie Epstein and the Astros to early rejections to Jenny's favorite story. Spoiler, it involves Bill Belichick and Nick Saban and excellent advice on coming up with that perfect story. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Instagram at Fangirl Sports Network. Now, let's get to it. Jenny, thank you so much for joining me today for Get My Job. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro, you are one of my absolute favorite sports writers and writers generally. So this is very exciting for me and I know for our listeners as well. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. But let's just dive right in. Uh, I'd love to know first, and this might seem like a basic question, but how did you get started in sports writing? What was the impetus for it? Yeah, I was actually a science major at Penn State, and my freshman year, I wanted to do some other kind of activity outside science. My older sister suggested, why don't you try out for the newspaper? And I thought that sounded like a good idea. I always enjoyed writing, and when I tried out it, the section I really wanted to write for was the sports section. Um, so I remember I didn't, you had to list your three top preferences and I knew being a biochemistry major that if I put down the science and health section, they would definitely assign me that section. And I really wanted to do sports. So I didn't even put that down as one of my three choices. So I started at the Daily Collegian um, just for fun. And by my junior year, I started to realize that this was what I wanted to do for a living instead. You know, I had planned to go to graduate school for science, um, maybe get my PhD and, and work in some kind of research job and so I did kind of a, a 180 um, in terms of being interested in journalism and so started looking at journalism grad schools, um, ended up going to Columbia after I graduated from Penn State. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how it all started was just as a fun activity. And so sometimes, you know, the business has its ups and downs, but I do try to remember just that excitement that I had early on of what it would be like to write stories, just to write my first story, you know, felt like this great thrill. And so it's sometimes nice to go back to that feeling and remember what that was like when you're having a, a tough day in the industry. I love that. And I actually was a, a writer for the Michigan Daily Sports section in college. So love the Big Ten connection there. Yeah. Um, uh, but I actually want to go back to something you just said about when you're having a bad day and remembering that excitement, because I think that's true for all of us that work in this industry that sometimes you have to remember, wait a minute, I, I write about football, I write about basketball. And can you just talk a little bit about that when you take a moment and say, wait a minute, what I'm doing here is what I wanted to do and really fun and how you get perspective when, when things feel like they're going off the rails? 
Yeah, because there can be a lot of pressure in this job, you know, covering the NFL in particular, there's so many media members, it's hard to get anything new. Um, Access can always be uh, a challenge because, you know, teams are so secretive and there are so many media members. Um, There's also challenges in the industry at large, you know, at Sports Illustrated right now, we're we're going through a lot. You know, we just had a a huge round of layoffs, Uh, our company has been sold twice in the last two years. And there's a lot of uncertainty um, and turbulence in journalism overall. And it does seem like, too, you know, this is a time when journalists are an easy target, right? Um, There's been a lot of, um, you know, between fake news and the way that people can access you easily on social media, there's been, um, it can be challenging sometimes to deal with some of the public scrutiny. Um, But I think the cure for me, usually when I'm feeling, you know, uncertain or a little bit angsty about what, what the future is or, or where our jobs are headed is really, you know, doing a good interview always gets me back on track, right? You feel re-energized and you feel excited again about producing something that other people will read. That was originally the first feeling that I felt, you know, as a student at Penn State was, hey, you're writing a story that you know, whatever your circulation is, 20,000 people will read and it's available at all the newsstands on campus. And obviously this is the early 2000s. So I'm dating myself by the way that students uh, (laughs) access news. Obviously it's a little bit different now, but just the idea of producing something that other people can read and sharing something that you've learned and maybe educating others or, or bringing light to a story. I think that's always to me is a sort of a nice reset and a reminder of why I got into this in the first place. What is a criticism that you received early on that not only improved your writing, but improved your reporting, even if at the time it was really hard to hear? Yeah, you know, I think I remember once when I was at the Daily Collegian, I had done this really long story on uh Penn State quarterback, Zach Mills, and he had um, his Penn State playing career had, had come to an end, but he was still on campus finishing out his degree or maybe as a graduate student still taking classes. Anyways, I, I did this long story on him and he had you know been the quarterback for the team in a tough time. Penn State was losing a lot and but there was a, uh, this outpouring of support that he got from a lot of fans. They emailed him and he kept them. I think his girlfriend printed them out for him and he had them in a binder and he ended up sending me some of those letters that he got. So I wrote this long story about what it's like to have, you know, maybe you didn't have the career you wanted, but then to get this outpouring of support afterwards. And he let me publish some of those, those emails, which was like a pretty cool story. But I remember the story ran in the paper and our newspaper advisor came down afterward. Um, and his point to me was there were some places in the story that I could have fa- uh, tightened up. There was some fat in the story that could have been cut. And it was hard to hear at the time because you had just spent, you know, a long time in the story and, you know, you were proud of how it came out. And he was not saying that I shouldn't have been, but his point was always keep your readers in mind that longer isn't always better, that sometimes you can share uh, point more succinctly. And that really the old adage of the key to writing is rewriting. And that was a really important lesson that I find myself thinking about all the time. Is there a, a better way that I can present it that would be more friendly for readers? Could I convey the same point more clearly, more sharply? Could I make it, you know, in a in a way that really gets through to the readers better? Um, and that's um, something that I've, I've tried to um re- 
remind myself, especially when you're writing for the web and you have no word count, there is a tendency to just go on forever. Um, But I do try to keep that in mind, you know, trim quotes down, trim the fat. um, And yeah, ultimately your goal is to present something that your readers will enjoy. Trim quotes down is so true because I find I put in, I'm like, this quote is so good. People need to know every word. And then when I go back and edit, I'm like, well, maybe they don't need to know. I mean, maybe they don't need a quote that's 10 lines long. Maybe the point does get there, but it's hard. I think I find it really difficult with quotes because I don't want to take away what someone else said, but you know, there's an appropriate way to trim down a quote. And I agree with you, but I find that one to be one of the hardest things to do for some reason. Yeah, absolutely. And right, of course, you want to keep all of the appropriate context. So I don't mean trimming in terms of like trimming out context, but perhaps you use one, yeah, one sentence, like one sentence instead of four that Mm -hmm. says the same thing or or the heart of the quote. Like I find that because sometimes when you're, if you're a reader and you're reading stories, if you see like a large paragraph that's all quotes, it's easy to skim over it and you might miss the meatiest part of it, you know? So it's basically just kind of, um, taking the best stuff that you have and really letting that shine. That's a good, that there, there's the advice right there. I think that's the nugget, taking the best stuff you have and really letting it shine. And it's hard as a writer because to writers, of course, every word is precious, but that is, I think, excellent advice right there. So after college and, and probably a little later, you started covering the New York football markets. I would love for you to talk about that because I would imagine that is a very difficult place to jump into just because obviously New York fans are very passionate and have very strong opinions about their teams. So covering the Jets and the Giants, I would imagine also came with its challenges. So can you just talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I'm so grateful that I had the chance to start my career in New York, but it definitely came with a chair of challenges. And I think that is a big reason why I'm grateful because you sort of were tested early on. Um, there's really nothing like the New York media market. And obviously there are other big cities in the country where it's similar. Like you go into a locker room and it's really hard to get anything one-on-one and you feel like every story is covered from every angle. So it really forces you to work harder to find new ground. You know, you have to be creative. You have to think about other sources you can build that other people don't already have. And on both the Giants and the Jets beats, there have been people who have been covering the team for decades. So I think you're coming in in your mid-20s, and at times it feels like, oh, my gosh, like there's no way I'm ever going to be able to break news. But you're, it's the NFL. There's so much turnover with coaches and rosters, and you basically just have to work harder to figure out, you know, who can I meet? Who can I connect with? How can I tell this story in a different way? Um uh, and it was it was really challenging. I was lucky in that, you know, Mike Garofolo, who's now at NFL Network, he was um, on the Giants beat when I first started at the Star-Ledger and really taught me everything there was to know, not just about covering a beat, but covering a beat in a really competitive market. Um, and I saw the way he hustled and worked to figure out new information. It seemed like he was always ahead of the rest of the beat. And so that was really inspiring to me and also a good model for me to to follow um, in terms of, you know, how to even begin doing that job. So you, you mentioned, Mike, do you have any other mentors along the way? And I also just want to take a moment and say, I think that's really awesome because it's hard on a beat and it is competitive 
And I've been lucky with the 49ers. Everyone is so, you know, works together and obviously everybody wants to do a good job and get the story. But I think it's unusual and it's incredible that you had that on the beat. So could you talk a little bit about other mentors you had and maybe ways now that you try to mentor other people coming into your position? Yeah, I think it's you become even more grateful for the people that helped you, like the older you get, because you do see that it can be rare. It's a competitive business. And so, you know, if you're helping other people, I think a lot of times people worry that gives up some of their competitive edge. So it it really means a lot when there are people that give you that time. I mean, obviously, you know, editors along the way have really made a huge difference. I mean, the only reason I I covered the NFL in the first place was my coworker, Mike, and also one of our editors, Drew Van Esselstyn, who, who thought, you know, Hey, let's give her this opportunity. She can do it. And then when I came to sports illustrated, um, you know, I came there to work for Peter King on the Monday morning quarterback. And what I really respected about Peter was he made a commitment to hire a staff that was different from a lot of staff. He wanted a diverse staff. He wanted women. He wanted people of color. He wanted people that brought different perspectives to the table. And I feel as though by doing that, he really started to change Sports Illustrated as a whole. Um, he started to change the the culture a little bit there, uh, at least in terms of hiring practices um, that were different from how SI had traditionally hired. And so I had so much respect for that part of it. And then also how hard he works. I mean, he's literally is like on the phone all day, every day with this inexhaustible sort of social stamina, which is really um, impressive. I think right now at SI, probably the best thing that, um, or the thing that I'm most grateful is that we have this great network of women. There's a group of us that communicate all the time and share ideas or just support for each other. And, you know, I think last week we saw the importance of that when Stephanie Epstein was reported accurately and fairly and importantly a story about what happened in the Astros locker room after um, they advanced to the World Series. And the organization initially issued a statement attacking her, and they've since retracted that. They were her report was accurate all along the Astros executive that was yelling inappropriate comments about, you know, Osuna who had been, had served a suspension for domestic violence. Uh, he's since been fired, but it was, it was wonderful to see, first of all, that there was, that Stephanie had the courageousness to report that story. I felt really um, proud is the wrong word. I felt really like grateful to be her colleague and um, just the, uh, the, it's difficult, right, to be in the crosshairs, to be called out by the people that you're covering in the middle of a World Series, and for her to basically be called by those people a liar, and then for them to back down just a few days later. And I was also grateful that we had this great support system where we were all cheering her on from the sidelines, you know, um, telling her how much we respected her and um, giving her, I hope, support in a time when she needed it. So those are some of the, the people along the way that have, have really uh, meant a lot to me. And along the lines of the story with Stephanie, it seems that there were people supporting her, of obviously within SI, but beyond, which to me felt like a real shift because, yes, the Astros certainly basically called her a liar, which was horrifying, but it felt like around the world of sports media, she was really supported. And I don't know if 10 years ago, 
that would have been the case. Do you, do you agree or, or no? Yeah, that was really encouraging to me. I thought, I, I totally agree with you. I thought the response was encouraging. I read the transcript from Jeff Luno's press conference and reporters were relentless, like on her behalf, you know, um, on the behalf, on behalf of, you know, uh, women in the locker room on behalf of journalists not being attacked. Um, so I thought the response, uh, indicated a lot, um, you know, the respect that people have for Stephanie, but also the respect people have for the jobs that female journalists have and, and, um, not wanting to take steps back. You know, there's been so much progress. I talked to women who covered professional teams in the eighties. I was talking to one woman recently who was sharing her experiences of having to interview players in this room that was adjacent to the x-ray room and the lights would go out every time a player got x-rayed because she wasn't allowed in the locker room. So they put her in the side room. So not only did she have to sometimes conduct interviews and the lights would go off in the middle of the interview, but she also worked for a wire service. And because she was interviewing players after the other reporters who were male and were allowed in the locker room, after they had already done their interviews, her stories moved later on the wire and were less likely to be picked up. So her career was directly impacted by the fact that she was a woman. And so seeing the strides we made since then always reminds me of how far we've come. But to hear the experience of not only Stephanie, but the two other reporters that she was standing with in the locker room, including one who was targeted because she was wearing a purple domestic violence bracelet, because every time Osuna was pitching, she tweeted out a resource for people who might need it for a domestic violence hotline. So to, to, um, to hear the way that they were treated was so disheartening, but it did feel it, it did feel somewhat reassuring just to see how many people business-wide you know, put competitive interests aside, put the fact that they worked for different outlets and really backed uh, all of the, the female journalists in that moment. So what do you think is the number one thing that could still be improved for women in this industry? Obviously, as you said, we've made great strides, but still a long way to go. What would you see as the number one place we could improve? I think women in leadership roles at media companies, you know, you look around and it's, media companies are still largely run by white men. I mean, that's definitely true at Sports Illustrated. And I think when situations like the story that Stephanie just covered came up, you are reminded of how important it is to have female voices, to have voices of many different perspectives to, you know, what's in terms of what we cover, how we cover it, uh, what voices we amplify you know, I, I think having people in hiring positions who are other than who are not white men will be would be really important in women making gains in this business. It's I'm so happy when I go to other you know games or go cover events and there's more women around than I've ever seen in my career. However, we're still a small group, right? You know, at the combine last year, um, there was a gathering of of women who work in NFL media and few other, um, you know, agents or people who are for teams. It was still a, a small group that was able to convene, uh, you know, an upstairs bar in, in one restaurant, right? So it's still a reminder that we're still a small-ish group. And I think that I would just love to see women in more decision-making roles and companies supporting women as they advance up through companies, not because they're women, but because their perspectives and their 
uh, abilities have qualified them for these roles, which is absolutely true. But you see so many times careers stalling out at certain levels or there being only certain roles that are earmarked for women in this business. And I think the only way for that to change is for there to be more women in leadership roles. So somewhat along those lines, what is the number one mistake you see women making when trying to break into the sports industry? And it may not just be women. It could be women and men that you see them making the same mistake. Yeah. So I don't want to qualify or classify it as a mistake because I feel like a lot of times we, you know, I I don't want to put the onus on women. Right. I think Mm -hmm. rather than a mistake, I think perhaps something that I wish I knew when I was younger in this business and that I hope women entering the business know is that there are going to be things that you experience that are different because of your gender that have nothing to do with what you do or do not do. There are going to be times when I always say the burden of proof for women in this industry is higher, that you have to prove you know what you're talking about, whereas I feel like it's a much lower bar to clear for men. There's more of an understanding that men entering the business um, know what they're talking about or are qualified for this job. As women, I feel like we have to prove ourselves more. And that's not fair. And that has nothing to do with how good you are at your job. But that's just the reality that we still have to continue to work at changing. Um, And I think there are going to be experiences that are different. You're going to be I just wish there were times when I, you know, was this something that I did or, or why didn't this person trust me to give them this information when they gave it to someone else? Or um, why did this, you know, why didn't I advance in the workplace? And I think, yes, of course, like you work as hard as you can and you do as, you know, as much as you can to push for different roles in, you know, your company or to break stories. But I think there are just going to be experiences that, are going to be different because of your gender and that you have no control over and you shouldn't feel bad about those things. It's interesting that you say that because when I ask people how they get started on this podcast, I never want to say, how did you become a sports fan? Because it's one of my pet peeves. No one asks men that. But people ask me that all the time. <laughs> Did you do you have I, I get oh my gosh, I get asked <laughs> that so much. Or like, have you always liked sports or uh-huh. something along those lines? Totally. I, I get that a lot. Week. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. It's so annoying because no one in the history, I'm sorry, but in the history of the world, I would I would be confident saying that no one has ever said to a man, so have you always liked sports? <laughs> it's it's, How it's so that? true. And and I think those things like they can I, I know for me, I'm I'm a person that like, struggles a little bit with confidence. And so I think early on sometimes those things did frustrate me, right? Like why am I not why do I feel like I'm not being treated with as much respect or why did I feel uncomfortable in a locker room? I remember one time I went into a locker room and I felt like people were talking about me and pointing at me. And I, I didn't, I, I remember going to the bathroom in the media room afterward and being like, is my fly, was my fly down? Like, was it because I wore boots with a two inch heel? Like, did I do something to bring it on myself? And there, I just think it's so natural for women if you have an experience that is uncomfortable or you feel marginalized in some way to blame yourself. And that's why I just think it's important to be honest about some experiences that happen along the way that have to do with your gender and have nothing to do with your knowledge or how you comport yourself. So if you could talk about, you you somewhat maybe just touched on a little bit by that experience in the locker room, but 
What was one of your most memorable rejections in the beginning days? And you said you struggle a little bit with confidence and how were you able to kind of get the confidence to overcome it and, and keep moving forward? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, confidence is still an issue, which maybe is a bad thing to admit. Cause I feel like today, the biggest thing for women is to be like, it's okay to like be confident. You see like Simone Biles quotes recently to USA Today about like, I'm good. And I, I want women to be able to say they're good. And Megan Rapinoe has had, you know, she's been this wonderful um, bastion of female confidence and not apologizing for it. I have sort of the opposite problem. Like I, I don't, I, am I doing the wrong story? Am I in the wrong place? Did I not ask the right questions? And even more than a decade into this, I still struggled with that a little bit. Um, one of my earliest rejections I can remember was I was an intern and I had applied for a, a beat job at another paper in another city. And uh, it was like a backup beat, uh, backup job on an NBA beat. And I remember I didn't get the job. And afterward, my editor at the time told me that he had told the other newspaper that I wasn't ready for a beat. So not only did I not get this other job that I was interested in, but I also had to start questioning my future at the place I was working. Like, did they see me as capable of covering a beat? And I got really frustrated because I, I felt like, what have I done that shows that I'm not ready? You know, I, I covered several beats at Penn State. I have, you know, done all kinds of general assignments, um, you know, at a professional newspaper after graduate school. I, I felt like I was ready. Um, and that was a, a one of the early low moments of just wondering what your trajectory is and if a door was, would open. And two of the people I mentioned before, you know, uh, Mike Garofolo and Drew Van Esselsen, they were really, they, um, they stood on the table for me. And I had this job at Super Bowl 42 of being like the scene blogger. I was like sent as like the 10th person out of 10 to cover this. And of course my job was covering the party scene and what was going on in Arizona. But I was like, you know what? I don't care if it's a crummy assignment. I'm just going to do the best possible job I can do. And I went all over the place, spent eight days in my little rental car, driving all over Arizona, capturing it. And after that, they were like, they pointed that out as an example of that he worked really hard. Let's give her a chance as a backup on the giant speed. And that was how I first got my entry into covering the NFL. So um, I was grateful for their support. And I also tried to work hard, even in the face of, you know, being disappointed for, um, not being told I was not ready for a beat um, and just tried to keep working. But I know that's not always the case. You don't always have advocates in the workplace. It doesn't always work out that way. And so um, that, I, I can see why a lot of times women have frustrating paths in this business. And you said something earlier about you know, struggling with confidence and maybe it's not good to admit that, but I would disagree. I think it's fantastic to admit that because yes, we as women should not be afraid to say, I'm good at what I do. I'm one of the best at what I do, but we all struggle with confidence and no one feels that way all the time. So I really appreciate that you said that because I think that's important for people to hear too. I think in this age of social media, we all think, oh, everybody's, everything's perfect and everyone's doing great. And Look at their most recent posts, but we all struggle with confidence. And I really personally really appreciate that you do admit that and, and elaborated on it. So thank you for that. 
Yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely true. It's a, it's a daily, uh, it's a daily battle, right? Feeling like, okay, like I can finish this story, or you know, I'm not the worst writer in the world, or I missed this story, but maybe I can move on to the next one. You know, this business is full of so many rejections and so many no's and that you really just have to keep fighting through kind of the times when you feel like, man, this isn't going to work out at all. Can you talk a little bit about social media? Because Twitter, especially for female sports journalists or females or anybody really can be a very, it can be a wonderful place. It can also be a terrible place. How do you deal with trolls? Yeah. My response to dealing with trolls is just to try to turn off notifications for a while. I know Mm -hmm. there's other people that go at them, and I respect that. I respect people that come back at them and call them on their BS. But for me, the best thing is to just turn notifications off and go silent for a while. I really um, experienced a bad dose of it this spring. I had done a story with Le'Veon Bell right after he signed with the Jets. um, And I went down to Miami and we talked about his year-long holdout and the resolution. um, And we had a a really good conversation and wrote a story um, in which he opened up about a lot of the things that had gone on in the past year. And the social media pushback I got to that story was a little bit unexpected. Um, A lot of it, I think, was... Um, Steelers fans that were frustrated at the way the year had gone previously with him not showing up there. But um, I did not expect a lot of the negative comments. Um, There were misogynistic comments. There were comments implying some kind of, you know, improper relationship, um, which really made me upset. Um, There were comments um, that, you know, on radio stations in in Pittsburgh, it was, you know, sexist comments. so I, that was when somebody in the, another reporter who had also faced criticism for a story they had written, where they told me, just turn on the filters on your mentions so you just don't see any of that stuff. So I did that for two weeks and that was really how I got through it all, just to not look at any of it. Um, because I think it, all of these opinions, they're, they're really meaningless. A lot of them come from anonymous accounts, but they can feel so big in the moment when you feel, um, when you feel like you're in the crosshairs and people are criticizing you, every comment that comes in piles up. And so rarely do people say, Hey, really enjoyed this story. More often than not, people who are writing in are the people that want to attack you for some reason. And so, um, for me, having blinders on was the best thing. I saw that Steph Epstein, she did an interview with the Washington Post, and she said the same thing, that she kind of just didn't check her mentions for a couple of days. And I think that's a pretty good way to return to sanity and just say, you know, I'm confident in my reporting. I'm confident in the job that I did in this case, um, and I don't need any kind of outside feedback to feel that way. The holiday rush is coming, and if you sell stuff online, you better get ready with ShipStation. With more people buying online than ever before, you have to be able to ship orders out quickly, efficiently, and affordably. But how do you keep track of all those orders, or decide which shipping carrier to use, or if you're getting the best rates? Luckily, ShipStation can help. With just a few clicks, you'll be managing orders, printing labels, and getting those products out the door, and delivered in time for the holidays. 
No matter where you're selling, Amazon, Etsy, your own website, ShipStation brings all your orders into one simple interface, making them really easy to manage from any device, even your cell phone. ShipStation works with all of the major carriers, including USPS, FedEx, and UPS. So you can compare and choose the best shipping solution for you and your customer. They even offer big discounts on shipping costs. Now any business can access the same postage discounts that are usually reserved for large Fortune 500 companies. You'll always know that you're getting the best deal. No wonder ShipStation is the number one choice of online sellers. You'll ship more in less time with the best rates available. Take the hassle out of holiday shipping this year. Let ShipStation help you handle it all with ease. Just use my offer code BLUE to get a 60-day free trial. That's two months free of no-hassle, stress-free holiday shipping. Just visit ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, and type in BLUE. That's ShipStation.com, enter offer code BLUE. ShipStation, make ship happen. Humans have been shaving for thousands of years, and the secret to a great shave, it hasn't changed much. The ancient Greeks didn't need flex balls or heated handles, and neither do you. That's why Harry's doesn't overcharge you to add gimmicky features to their razors. They focus on delivering what actually matters, sharp, durable blades at a fair price. My friends love Harry's because it gives them a close shave, easy glide, low price. Do us a favor and check out harrys.com slash bluewire for your free trial today. Harry's is a return to the essential. Quality, durable blades at a fair price. Just $2 per blade. Harry's is super convenient. Blade refills are delivered directly to your door on your schedule with or without a subscription. And there's no risk to you for trying them out. If you don't love your shave, let them know and they'll give you a full refund. Listeners of this show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com slash bluewire. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel with aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go. Go to harrys.com slash bluewire to start shaving better today. So what has been your favorite story that you've written to date? And it may be hard to pick one. But. One that was somewhat recent that I enjoyed doing, I did a story about a year and a half ago about Bill Belichick and Nick Saban's friendship. And it had started in the 80s when Bill Belichick's father, who has influenced so many of the things in his coaching career introduced him to Nick Saban, who was a young assistant on um, at Navy at the time where, where Bill's father worked. And from there launched this friendship of the two best coaches in two different levels. And it sustained over decades. And I first wanted to write the story about the time when they had these secret meetings at West Point in the late eighties Belichick was working for the Giants. Uh, he was on Parcell's staff at the time, and Saban was working for the Oilers, and they would have these clandestine meetings to discuss, like, cover two at some hotel in West Point. Uh, but it became, it, um, it branched out from there and had the chance to sort of tell different um, stories from different stages of their friendship uh, from back in the early 80s to the present day. And I think it was really educational for me because so much of what they've done has really shaped the way that football is being played now. It shapes, you know, obviously who wins every year. They're always a contender. 
And uh, it was interesting to hear, not just from them, but from the people around them. That was one of the challenges is like you get, okay, a finite time with both coaches. And I was glad to even get that time because their schedules are so busy. And so to be able to talk to both of them for any amount of time was worthwhile. But then to write a longer story, it became a challenge of how do I flesh it out? I ended up calling, you know, more than 20 other people and everyone had some kind of story that added something. So that was just a reminder of if you feel like maybe what you get from the primary sources in your story isn't enough, there's always so many other people you can call that can fill in the stories and give you the details that make the the core material come to life a little bit more. And that was, um, that was a lesson that I learned from that story. That's a good lesson for writers everywhere and for journalists everywhere. So thank you for that. So you talked about um, getting, you know, working with Peter King, Monday morning quarterback. That was when you went to SI. I just would love for you to talk a little bit about when you got that call and what that process was like before we move into five fun facts. (laughs) Yeah. So I was working at the star ledger at that time. I was, um, I covered the Jets previously and that year I was on the Giants beat again um, and I was at the Super Bowl in New Orleans, and Matt Gagne, who was an editor at Sports Illustrated at the time, asked if I wanted to meet for lunch. So we went to this random P.F. Chang's, which sounds like a terrible pick in New Orleans, but uh, <laughs> Matt is, like, very strictly gluten-free. I am also gluten-free, but not to the degree that Matt is. Matt will, you know, he, he, he will get sick if he has gluten. So we went to a P.F. Chang's because they had a gluten-free menu. And he told me about this MMQB project that they were starting. And uh, it sounded really interesting. You know, it's sometimes one of the challenges in this business is what's, where should I be? You know, am I at the right job? Should I change jobs? And I think in that moment, hearing Matt describe this job, what Peter was trying to start, this NFL vertical at Sports Illustrated, it was just the kind of thing where instantly I felt like this is going to this is going to be good. I want to be a part of this. And uh, from there, I, I met with Peter at the combine, like 6.30 a.m. for breakfast because Peter starts his days super early at the combine. So we met for breakfast uh, before he had like any number of meetings. And he told me a little bit more about the, the vision. And then, um, you know, from there, more meetings and more phone calls. But I think initially when I heard about the opportunity, uh, I, I could tell it would be something, it was a, a different idea. And that's what Peter really brings to his reporting. And that's what he brought to the MMQB was trying to do things a little bit differently. I talked earlier about the challenge of covering the NFL when there's so many reporters and so many outlets, and it feels like it's a challenge to get something different. And that's what Peter is always able to do. He's always able to find things that are different. And he encouraged us to do the same that first year, you know, he was, he asked us to write down 10 story ideas that we wanted to do, even if we didn't know if they were feasible. And one of those was sitting in on an ACL surgery of an NFL player because we thought, well, we always hear, oh, surgery went well. Like, what does that actually entail? But I never thought that that would be something we would be able to do. Um, but a couple of weeks later, I had the opportunity. Stevie Brown had torn his ACL in the preseason game and Dr. Andrews was performing the surgery in, uh, in uh, excuse me, Gulf Breeze, Florida. So I went down and was able to watch the surgery um, as it happened. We called the story 63 minutes to a new knee because it only took 63 minutes, which is still crazy to me. 
Um, wow. So things like that, that Peter like encouraged us to, but I always will remember Matt reaching out to me at in New Orleans at the Super Bowl and being like, Hey, like, do you want to talk? And I had no idea at that point what it would become, but really that helped set my uh, career on a, a new path. And so I'm always grateful to both Peter and Matt for that opportunity. That's amazing. And that's such a great idea about writing down the 10 story ideas. That's a great idea really for any journalist because, you know, even if you can do two of them or three of them, that's fantastic. And I guess along with that is like you said, even if you think it's not feasible, it certainly doesn't hurt to write it down and ask. Totally. It never hurts to ask, even if the answer is no. And maybe if you say it out loud, maybe someone else has an idea for how you can get it done. I think it just helps to push yourself to say, if I could write, what's the story that I've always wanted to write? Or if I could do any story tomorrow, what would it be? And it forces you to think about being creative or think about different ideas that maybe you didn't even think about as a story. Maybe it was just a passing thought. But if you sit down and say, hey, I need to write down 10 ideas I want to do, then you start to coalesce some passing idea into a story concept. And I think that's really where a lot of the best stories come from. I agree. That's that's fantastic advice. So we've gotten to the end of the episode, but one of my favorite parts, because I think anybody that follows me knows, and I say this every time, every episode, I love fun facts. So we go to our five fun facts portion of the episode. And Jenny, I'm just going to read them off and you can give me your answer. So number one, what is your favorite moment in sports? First Super Bowl, I covered Super Bowl 42. That was an epic Super Bowl. Obviously, the Giants beat the undefeated Patriots. The Giants had arrived in Arizona wearing all black for the death of a perfect season. And then, of course, the way the game unfolded, David Tyree's helmet catch. For that to be my first Super Bowl um, was crazy because every Super Bowl I watched since, it, it, I measure it up against that standard. And it's probably biased because that was my the first one I'd ever covered, but I don't think any since has surpassed the excitement of that game. That, that makes sense. That's totally fair. Your life motto. I think nevertheless, she persisted. That's something I think about a lot, um, especially being a woman in this business, especially being in a business where you hear a lot of no's or you face a lot of roadblocks or uh, feelings or, you know, things that you're told you cannot do. Um, so, I think it, that's a great example of just continuing to push and regardless of what others are telling you. Well, and whatever, with everything you've talked about today, it sounds like that truly is how you live your life. So that motto seems to make a lot of sense, but I think it, it's a great motto really for anybody. What is your go-to workout? Um, I go to a place called Refine Method in my neighborhood. It's a HIIT workout. So, you know, circuit training, uh, cardio, weight training, all mixed in. The best thing is when you have, have a bad week for whatever reason and you do med ball slams and the instructors are like, you know, picture somebody that pissed you off this week. It's very <laughs> cathartic. I recommend it to anybody who needs a really. I I think that that is great advice, and um, I'm sure that your instructors are glad they're not the person you're thinking about when they slam that med ball right. into the ground. What is your go-to coffee order? Uh, Americano, black. Love it. And a book every woman should read. 
So I just started this book and it came to me upon recommendation actually from Peter King's wife, Anne. I saw her two weeks ago at a dinner and she said, have you read Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger? So I'm just a couple chapters into it, but it is a wonderful message about how it's, how it, women's anger has actually shaped a lot of history and that we should ha- not feel there, there's no shame in feeling mad that our anger has a lot of power and being angry is not a bad thing. It's something that can be a catalyst for change. And especially in times when we really feel like, you know, we need it, that in society, sometimes change comes in fits and bursts. And I think right now we're seeing a really, it's an important time in the history of women. I think there's a lot of women who are speaking up and are, um, you know, kind of channeling this, feeling that a lot of us have a frustration about why women's rights haven't advanced further or why some of the rights we have are trying to be taken away. Just feel like it's a great message um, that, and one that um, I really relate to. And I think a lot of women in this business would as well. Oh, that sounds awesome. I'm going to download that today. That sounds fantastic. Um, I say download because I'm a, I'm an iPad reader, but I am definitely going to download that today. That sounds great. Jenny, thank you so much for joining me today. As I said before, you are one of my absolute favorites in this business. So it was such an honor to get to talk to you. And you really just provided so much great insight and advice for our listeners. So I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it, Tracy. Absolutely. All right. All right, everybody. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, Get My Job, and follow us on Instagram at Fangirl Sports Network and on Twitter at Fangirl Sports. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.